Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this or watching this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, I also write some stories for older readers under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, and you can get interviews with thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, all the best people at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, so go there and uh, enjoy the archives of the show. So my guest uh, this episode is none other than Elaine Adams. I am so thrilled to talk with you. Elaine, how are you this evening? Hey Rob, I'm really, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's going to be a fun night. We got lots to talk about, you know, books, books, middle grade, magic, all that good stuff. So yeah, thanks for having me. I've got three pages of questions for you. We'll, we'll, we'll see how we do. <laughs> I talk fast, Rob, don't worry. I talk really fast. So we'll just like whip through it like that. No problem. So let's go. I guess uh, my well, my my number one rule is I never uh, summarize other people's books or other people's biographies, and that's how I keep friends in the industry. Yeah. Uh, so rather than me doing a, a clunky uh, overview of your background, if you would kind of give esteemed audience the highlights of your background. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so I haven't always been an author, although I've really always wanted to be an author, right? So since I was really young, all I wanted to do was write books, and I, I did it a lot. I just didn't do it full time. I was in a family business for a long time, and I was really pursuing a lot of interest in raising kids. Uh, but I always had that dream, you know. I just really, really wanted to write books, and we all, many authors, many frustrated authors, right? We're just always dreaming that someday we're going to have that bestseller. And, I, and I, I just didn't do it. I think I was just afraid more than anything, Rob. I was just afraid to really pursue my dream. And then one day all that changed because my son, he was 12, and he came to me and he, and he knew we'd been talking about the fact that I wanted to write. And he knew how important it was to me. And he said, well, mom, you know, why don't you write a book that I can read? And I was like, well, I'm not going to write a kid's book. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, Please, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna be like the next Dean Koontz. You know, that was my big dream in life, right? Dean, step aside. Elaine is here, right? Let me just take the throne from you. I'm ready. And uh, and you know, he he triggered something though, like this idea, because I literally had never thought of being the children's author. And all of a sudden, I was like, well, I guess I could try. I mean, how hard could it be? It's for kids. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Like writing kids' books is really hard. Um, but but you know, it just sparked something in me because I love kids. And I was I was running a foundation, and we were focusing on. A lot of things around literacy and I've been working a lot with UNICEF traveling around the world looking at projects around children and so all of a sudden this idea of writing children was like well that, that, that could be interesting you know I like I like books I like kids and so um, I wrote a book for him and this is the book I wrote The Red Sun it was the first book um, that I wrote for him and so it's all based on the kind of things that he likes he loved Norse mythology I like Norse mythology I grew up reading Lord of the Rings and, uh, and I just sort of built the characters and the whole story around things that he liked and he loved it so much he made me write you know the second book and then the third book because until I finished I'm like no more I finished the story okay that's it it's a trilogy that's how I got out of that um, and, and then after that, he was like, well, I need you to publish it. I believe in you. And he really pushed me, you know, to do a lot of things with the books that maybe I, I didn't plan to do. And so that's really, really how I became an author. And the literacy advocate just sort of became a natural thing. I run a foundation called Rise Up Foundation. 
and the two just sort of really came together and I started traveling to schools and talking to kids and I think I said to you before we started the interview I've traveled to over um, 300 schools across the country from New York Chicago Florida you know North Carolina Oregon Washington you name it Montana Texas I've been to Texas many times California everywhere I've been everywhere and uh, I love it until the pandemic happened I you know I really traveled everywhere so that's a long answer to uh, your quick question no, that's uh, beautiful. I'm going to keep teeing them up and uh, <laughs> we're all <laughs> as much information as we possibly can. I love that that, that story of, of your son encouraging you to write. Uh, this is, is it 2008 when you found uh, Rise Up and then you, you start focusing fully on books? Do I have that time frame about right? Uh, sort of. So what happened is I was always in a family business from, I, I, was, I was actually a CPA way back in the day. I had my certified public accounting license. I was a certified nerd. And uh, and then I, and I, I did that for a few years and I worked in a family business for almost 20 years. And so we had a recycling business and it got quite large and we did a lot of work to make it bigger and then and then I retired I like I said enough like I've had it I want to go do other things I want to pursue my passions not just this thing I'm good at like you can be good at something but not really passionate about it right and so I was really good at that kind of stuff and and successful but I wanted to pursue the passions, so I left the company in 2008, and I went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and said, "Okay, now that I've found myself, I want to I want to start my foundation." That's when I started the Riser Foundation, and I started teaching at a university. I started teaching at Chapman University here in Orange County, and uh, really enjoyed teaching. I was teaching a class on social enterprise, how to connect entrepreneurship and business together, and I was teaching accounting, of course, and I love teaching. Uh, and that was when I began to discover the time, right? Because I've been in this high pressure career for a long time. Now I was running a foundation. I was traveling all over the world. I was I was teaching at a university, but I didn't have that same overwhelming time constraint. I was a little more free to do other projects. And that's around the time it was around 2012. So it was a few years after I left the business around 2012. Uh, I know that because that's how old my son was. Uh, when he asked me to write him the book, that's when he said, I was frustrated. You see, I thought naturally the moment I left the business and I had free time, I would just start writing. Like it would just happen. You know, I was just boom, I'd be a writer, boom, make it happen. And I was frustrated because it wasn't. And and that had a lot to do with just confidence and things like that. It wasn't a lack of ideas. It was when until my son said, then, you know, write me a book. And it was like, all of a sudden I had a reason and a drive and a push from somebody that was saying like, you know, you can do this, mom, and I believe in you. And, and we had a lot of fun together. We wrote the story together. You know, if you want to know what a 12 year old is going to like, you know, ask a 12 year old. And so we would go to Starbucks, you know, Rob, for literally hours and just like uh, sit there and just talk, you know. So it was a really joyful experience. And, and I, I just, you know, just sort of began to evolve. So from 2012 on is really when I began to evolve and become a full time, really a full time writer. It sounds like even if the, the, the writing hadn't worked out, just the uh, joy of spending time with your child. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And look, he would have agreed because uh, he was really determined that I was going to publish these books and he was going to have something, you know, like he could brag about. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a really, really fun experience. And then it just made me want to do more. And you know, at the same time, uh, you know, apparently my family, my family thinks they should they should ask me to write them books because at the same time, uh, my dad uh, came to me and asked me to write him a, a book. And and he said, you know, Elaine, <laughs> I got this great story, you know, um, um, here's a, here's a 
story about the coal thief, you know, and and uh, he told me this whole story about growing up in 1920s Pennsylvania and and just uh, and, and how he got into a little bit of trouble stealing coal. And when he told me the story, he was like 95 when he told me the story. It just really inspired me like this is a great story, Dad, and I think it would make a great picture book. So I'd never made a picture book before and all of a sudden um, I was writing picture books. And I really, really enjoy the picture books that I've made. I don't uh, make a lot of picture books because if you ask a writer, I think in general, you know, writers want to write pages, right? Like I, I like to write. So my books are meaty chapter books, right? With lots and lots of words or picture books, like 800 words, right? So I always ask kids, well, what do you think takes longer to make a picture book or a chapter book? And they're like, oh, a chapter book. I go, no, 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 it's a picture book, right? Because it takes that illustrator a whole year, maybe to do all the pictures. And my job is like 800 words. I can do that in a day or two, you know, there's no fun for me. And we'll go back and forth, you know, on, on but, but overall for me as an author, making picture books isn't much fun, but I had a lot of joy and making stories that represented my dad's life and really represented the things that happened to him and brought them to life and preserved them, I think, for, you know, for eternity. So um, that was really the best part of that. So, yeah, um, I, I think I forgot your question at this point, but that's a great answer, right? <laughs> I mean, there was like three questions. We'll pretend that I also asked, and it was all great. And I, I have to uh, apologize to uh, esteemed audience who's maybe going to hear some chirping birds in the background. I have got, this is episode 117, and my seven-year-old has been perfectly behaved for 116 episodes, and tonight he is refusing to, to go to bed, so my apologies. I don't know if the birds and the uh, dogs are more aggressive than the cries. Or it's all part of the atmosphere, Rob. It's all, it's all just going to be part of the atmosphere. We're just going to run with it. Well, I think that's. Uh, I think people will probably be more forgiving after a year of pandemic living. Everybody's been <laughs> yeah. working from home on Zoom, and everybody and, knows yeah. those kids walk in. My dogs are always interrupting. I put my dogs in another room and locked them in with my mom tonight, so they wouldn't bother us tonight. So trust me, they usually will find a reason to bark. So we're all good. Well, uh, it'll just be a fun episode of of, of me moving around a bit. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, right away, impossible question. I saw that your all-time favorite book is River God by Wilbur Smith. <laughs> you really dug deep, didn't you? What a, what a bold move, first of all, for an author to put that in her bio and, and alienate anyone else you might see at conferences when you said, this is, this is for sure my favorite book. But what is it about Wilbur Smith's River God that, that, that earns that honor? Hey, Rob, have you ever, are you familiar with the story at all? I haven't. I'm hoping you'll give me a great recommendation. Yeah, well, it's 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 not something I typically read. I mean, if you ask me, like my latest read was Harlan Coben's latest book. I like Lee Childs. I like Dean Coons. I like Stephen King. I like I like a lot of suspense thriller, and of course, I read a lot of kids' books because that's part of the job. Um, but there was something about this story that was so gripping, and it and it really took you back. So the story of River God is all about ancient Egypt and, and it's it's told by the story of a eunuch slave and and sort of his point of view and everything happening around him and the just and all these sort of things that are being discovered at the time. And there's a later book that ties together, it's set in the present time that has to do with some of the treasure that gets buried. But but most of the book is historically accurate. And I just think for whatever reason, I was so captivated. I guess what a book should do is captivate you, right? It should take you away from where you are and take you someplace else. 
And there was something about the writing and the story that was so captivating. The characters were so compelling. And the story, even it was, you know, we're thinking ancient Egypt, really? That's what you were interested in? But I'm just telling you, Rob, it was like, it was so compelling. You were so drawn to the story and the character dilemmas and conflicts and, and, and the drama and the sweeping drama of it, you know? And it's just this beautifully written story that really, if you ever want to understand what life was like in ancient Egypt and the time of Cleopatra and things like that, this is the story told from these point of views, you know, these people that were living it and the war and the battles and how the wars were raged and the, the literally the the type of thinking that went into battle decisions. You know, today everything is is supersonic and computerized, right? But back then you were planning these strategies based on human nature and the physical number of people that you had to put in the field and the the the, the intellect, you know, the, the actual battles that are sort of being recreated. I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say because I like fantasy novels and this is it's kind of like a fantasy novel and, and, and like a mythology, almost like, you know, it's not Egyptian mythology, but it has a little bit of that feeling. And I have to tell you, any readers, any listeners out there that, you know, really want to dive into something meaty and just just full on romance and, and intrigue and political intrigue and and just all the things that you want from a story, while the way just going mind blown. I was fascinated for years after that by Cleopatra and that story of the time period, you know, of ancient Egypt. So um, it just, it's just, it's, and it's one of those books that leaves a mark. Like not a lot of books, I read a lot of books, right? I, I couldn't tell you the plot half the time, the character, whatever you read them, they're kind of like candy, you know, just the authors churn them out every year, right? And, and they're very, they follow a formula. And so I think there was something about this book that was just, didn't follow a formula and, and, it, and it took me, it took my heart you know, someplace. And I think that's, as an author, what you always strive to do, right? To take your reader somewhere into this world and 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 just change their heart, you know, and, and make them go, wow, that was, I didn't want that to end. I just did not want that to end. And I'm sad, you know, when it ended. So that's, uh, that's, that's a long answer to that question. Well, that begs uh, another question. First of all, you, you're a reader after my own heart. I've been watching some of your uh, videos uh, where you, you're reading to uh, your audience. Um, and you, you've usually got your shelf behind you that's got the Stephen King and the, the Dean Koontz right there behind you. Which yeah, exactly. When I'm out in front of my shelves, that's, that's what I've got right behind me as well. Because um, I also love the, the horror as well as the, the middle grade fiction. Um, but now that you've, you've tackled uh, Norse mythology and Greek mythology, given that you have this deep passion for Egyptian uh, mythology, I, are we eventually going to see maybe at least one book, if not a full trilogy? Okay, so Robert, I, I, gotta, I gotta be honest with you. Tr mythology is a tricky field. So when I started writing these books for my son, it was about nine years ago, and there's another author that writes a lot of mythology, middle grade mythology and stuff, and he really pioneered a lot of the books that were done. And my son was a big fan of his books, and 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 at the time he hadn't written anything in Norse mythology. So I said, you know, I think I'm going to try Norse mythology. I like it. I like Lord of the Rings. It's a natural fit for me. And then of course this author, you know, ended up writing several books in Norse mythology, which is great. They're very, we're very different writers. We're very different writing styles. Um, my books always take place in a 
fantasy realm. Like what I love about writing is to take my characters and move them into a fantasy realm and create this sort of magical world. So I like, maybe I'll start like in the in the Red Sun, the first book I wrote for my son, it starts here in this world, but it very quickly within four chapters goes to a magical realm and the book takes place in the magical realm. That's the kind of writing I like to do, you know? And so I, I thought a couple of years ago, it'd be really fun to try Greek mythology as an example. And I started to write a series, um, it's called The Legends of Olympus. And um, it's, a, it's a series about a, 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 a young girl who is a daughter of Zeus and she has to go back to ancient Olympus and save Olympus from, you know, a ancient prophecy. And, and the reason I wrote this series is, is I just had this idea, and this is what happens with authors. We get an idea in our head, right? Like, what if, what if, what if, what if, and I was really taken by the story of Perseus, the, the actual Greek god Perseus, the one that slays Medusa. And, and if you're familiar with the story, then you know that Perseus had a prophecy over his head. His father, King Acrisius, uh, ha had gone to an oracle and the oracle told him, King Acrisius, your grandson, who has not been born or even conceived yet, is going to rise up one day and kill you. And so King Acrisius, of course, is very worried because they believed everything the oracle said. And he had one daughter, Daenerys, and so he takes her and he locks her up in a basement because that's the obvious solution. If I'm going to have a grandchild, the grandson, rise up and kill me, then I better make sure I don't have any grandchildren. So he takes his beautiful daughter and he locks her in this basement. That's fair, right? Why not? He's a king. And so he, she grows she's up. She, she's fine with it, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the king. We don't, this is the way mythology works. People don't actually object. To, that's just the way the story is written. And then, you know, old Zeus, the old goat, right? He sees her, you know, in, in from the heavens. He sees this beautiful maiden locked away in a basement. And as the mythology tells it, in some sort of golden rain or something, something, you know, Daenerys, she becomes pregnant with Zeus's child. And so Zeus creates this child with the, the, the daughter of Acrisius. So now she gives birth to this son, Perseus. King Acrisius finds out, of course, he's horrified. Oh my gosh, this baby is gonna grow up one day and kill me. And he wants to destroy this child. But then he's reminded that the child is a son of Zeus, which a powerful God will destroy him if he harms his child. So instead he does something very kind and loving as a father, grandfather would do whatnot. He takes his daughter, and baby Perseus, and he puts him in a wooden box and he tosses him into the sea. Sure. Perfectly fine, right? Who wouldn't do what loving father, grandfather wouldn't think that's a perfectly yeah, rational we'll, solution? We'll just let the sea close. take care of it. They'll sink and they'll drown, right? And it'll be fine. Problem solved, right? Only problem is they survive. They float across the ocean, they land on a distant island. Seraphos and a fisherman sort of takes them in and and Perseus and his mother grow up in this small fishing village and years later he's at an athletic competition when he's an adult and he throws a discus the discus bounce and it kills King Acrisius by hitting him in the head totally accidental totally unplanned and that's the fruition of that of that prophecy. And in the meantime, of course, Perseus goes out and slays Medusa and he has help from Athena, his half sister and all these other gods and whatnot. Okay, so I know, great, great mythology story. One of the most famed mythology stories in all of Greek mythology. And I thought to myself, well, what if, what if, what if Perseus, you know, he's got this great prophecy. Well, what if he has a twin? 
Like, what if there's not just one baby? What if there's two? And what if there's two prophecies? And so I, I, I couldn't shake it. I mean, I tried uh, three years. I wrote the story once, twice, three times. I threw it away. I rewrote it. Finally, I figured out what I wanted to write. And I wrote the story of, of Phoebe, who's Perseus's twin sister. And she had her own prophecy. And to protect, and this prophecy really meant the destruction of Olympus. And so to protect her, the Oracle takes her to New York City in modern times, because you can do that if you're gods and you just have magic, whatever, you create this time portal, boom, she's in New York City and they abandon her there. So she's an orphan, you know? And and so the premise of the story, she has to go back to ancient Greece to save, you know, to stop this prophecy, whatever the prophecy is. So, so I wrote that. Okay, so we're getting back to why not Egyptian mythology. And I wrote this book with full, you know, so much joy, so much fun. And, and here's the thing about people that read your books. Some people like them, some people don't. And, and that's just the way it is. And I get that. And it doesn't bother me at all. I totally understand that your book is not going to be for everybody. But by writing a story in Greek mythology, um, it really seemed to bother a lot of people who had read another story in Greek mythology with this, by a very popular author, you know, and, and it just really seemed to bother them. Now, kids, now we're talking 20-somethings, not, not kids. Kids that read my book, they love the book. They love it. The teachers love it. I've had thousands of kids read the book, and they love the story. But when it came to social media and to sort of like talking about your book and, and, and promoting it and stuff, there was so much pushback from people that would not accept that there could be a second, like, well, like your book is just a copy of, of somebody else's story. Be like, what do you mean? Well, you, you have, you have, uh, 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 you have the Sphinx in here or something, or you have, you have the Hydra, you know, that's been used. Okay. Well, you know, Hydra's been around for thousands of years, right? No one, I like that. Like, it's like saying that, you know, you, if you write about Thor, you're stealing from Marvel, right? Marvel did not invent, I hate to get, if you guys don't know this or not, Marvel did not invent the event, the Thor, you know? Marvel did not invent Odin or Asgard. Those places were created thousands of years ago. But I found a tremendous pushback from these diehard fans who said, Greek mythology really belongs to this one author, and you can't write a story there without us really telling you we don't like it. Now, should that stop me? No, it really shouldn't. Does it inspire me to want to go write another series in like Egyptian mythology when this has also already been covered? I don't know. I mean, it's it's a tough thing. And one of the things, that, and and of course that, and, and there's been a lot of books written about those. There's there's other stories, and other people have told stories about them. So I start thinking, well, maybe the answer, Elaine, is to not to continue to try to retell stories that other people have told anymore, right? To get away from the mythology, which is sort of set in stone, and a lot of people have done, and to go create your own, like, meaning your own fantasy world, right? And so that's really the direction. This is why I'm not really pursuing. I love Greek mythology. There's so many great monsters. By the way, there's just so many great monsters in Greek mythology. I could write about it all day long. I just wrote the sequel to the first book, and it's like two books and done. I think I'm happy with that. Um, but um, I have my ongoing series um, for the, the Orkney series, which is I have the middle grade series and the junior middle grade series, and that one's kind of ongoing. I did the trilogy for my son, and then I have the Witches of Orkney, which is for the younger kids, and that's just ongoing. And I love those books, and they're a lot about witches and a little bit of Norse mythology, but not, you know, it's not like the overriding thing. So what I'm looking at is my next project is how can I create my own 
magic, my own fantasy world, so that no one can say like, well, you just used what somebody else has done and really make it unique and magical and magic. I love magic. I don't know about you, but I assume you do. I love magic. I love writing about magic and creatures. And so that's what I'm trying to come up with is a story, a story that will be completely unique and completely magical, but not based on, on anything we've ever seen before. Whole new thing. Aren't, aren't readers funny and, and, and lovable? We love readers. But I have a friend who, who wrote a, a young adult novel about uh, a couple uh, a couple of uh, teenagers that fall in love, and one of them has uh, cancer. And, of course, there's another famous novel similar to the author here in Indiana. And it's like, well, yeah, lots of lots of people have cancer. There, there, there's room for this story multiple times. But for, God, for God's sake, when we're talking about Greek mythology, that's uh, literally for, for, for God's sake. Um, how many times have we seen and will continue to see uh, these Greek mythology stories? And, and, and for God's sake, I think we get two different versions of Batman on screen this year alone. I, I think I there's room. <laughs> there's no accounting for people's reactions, I think, and it's no reason not to write something. I'm only saying, it's sort of, you know, as an author, sometimes it takes some of the fun away when you get this pushback from a very large audience that that really believes that you you know you've you you've you've stepped into somebody else's territory. And honestly, I have an infinite imagination. I don't need to write about mythology. My my imagination knows no boundaries, so I can make up whatever I want. I don't need to write about mythology. It just was what my son liked. And so I just think from now on, I just want to focus on stories um, that, that I've either already started and have you know storyline in, or I want to create worlds of my own making where you know it's just literally my imagination. And there's so so much to be done. Listen, there's so many books we can write, so many stories we can tell, but we don't need to be using, you know, the, the ancient gods that have already been existed. I can I can step into other other areas, and that's really what I'm focusing on. And I think that's a great opportunity for me to create something really brand new. I, I'm working on this story called it's kind of called the tween worlds, you know, this idea of pocket worlds, you know, in between other worlds, and just this idea that you can just travel into these other that exist places, the worlds that exist in between other worlds you know that space in between and just all kinds of really fun magical characters and things that really don't know any rules and there's no rules in, in those and so you don't have to follow some rule that says well this god is the god of lightning and this god is the god of justice and this is the rule you know you can just you can just really just let go and 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 do whatever you want so i'm, I'm kind of enjoying it to be honest so well, i'm assuming that with the with the um, two myth trilogies, if not the witches as well, and uh, you've had to do a great deal of research. You need to make sure that you are honoring some version of those characters and that you're not going to get trolled online. So if you're creating something out of whole cloth, does that mean goodbye research time, hello, more time to, to draft and follow my heart's content? Or are you researching all new subjects? I think that's a great question. You know, I think that the research is a huge part of it, and, and especially with mythology. When I was just writing, when I just finished the last Greek book, the second, the sequel, the Medusa Quest, dear Lord, the amount of research that goes into just finding some obscure, you want to try to find some obscure pieces of mythology. And the thing about mythology is there's four different versions, right? I mean, you, you, you don't, there's not just one accounting of mythology. There's, especially in Greek mythology, there's so many different people that told the stories that one version may say this and another version, version may say this, you know? And it's really trying to find an, a source that you can really decide on. It's okay, this is gonna be my source and this is gonna be the, the mythology that I follow along. And this is, and these are the rules I'm gonna break. Like for example, my story, Hercules and Perseus, 
you know, are in the same story. Well, theoretically, Perseus was like a great grandfather of Hercules, so they wouldn't have been around at the same time. But you got to bend the rules sometimes because it's important that my characters sort of play the role they need to play within the story. And this is mythology. So and I kind of say a note to my readers. Hey, by the way, I kind of get that. Don't troll me. I get that they're not necessarily at the same time, but we're just we're just playing with mythology. We're just having fun. So just let me have some fun with this, you know, without really breaking the rules and saying, well, Hercules was not super strong or something. Like, you know, you, you can't just make them something different. Okay, But you can play with timelines, I think. That's my rule anyway. So, yeah, absolutely. I have stacks and stacks of books in my office and they're all thumb noted and, and highlighted and underlined and sticky notes of all the different things in mythology that you need to sort of have as inventory, right? So that when you're writing the story, um, you, you have something to call on. And an example I always use with kids is in the Red Sun, there's a scene where my character is battling a giant squid monster thing and and, and, he, and he loses his spear, of course, as we are tend to do when we're being attacked by a giant squid monster, you know? And, and I think to myself, well, wouldn't it be really nice if he had a magic spear right now, right? And, and I think, oh my goodness, I remember, and maybe you know this, Rob, in Norse mythology, I had read about a magic spear called the Gunnar Spear, you know, and you call it, and it will come. And I'm like, Durr! and I run back a few chapters, and I find a way for Forsyth out of justice to give it to him, and then Durr! go forward. And now when he sits there, he goes, well, I don't think this is going to work, but okay, I'll try it. Gunnar, and all of a sudden the spear appears in his hand, and boom! giant squid handled, you know? And then later he destroys the spear accidentally and it gets into all kinds of trouble. So those are a lot of fun when you have those kinds of things. Now, when you're creating your absolute own world, the thing about world building, you have to really understand how world building works and there has to be rules. It can't just be, well, I need this to happen, so twinkle nose, this magical thing happens, right? There's rules of magic. There's a price of using magic. Usually there's a cost to you somehow. Magic is draining. It doesn't just come free willy-nilly. There's a limit on how much magic you can have versus me, or else we would all just magic everything into being. And so, you know, the, the fun part about it, though, is that you get to really build a world that you want and with characters that you want. And um, I wrote the whole story. I, I, this book is the, the the world is called Pandora. It's kind of like a kind of Pandora, but Pandora. I don't know. It's kind of a cool little world. And I wrote the whole thing in first person. I love my character. Uh, his name is Farty Barty. And, you know, I kind of written it. And then I just it was just missing something. You know, it was just like, you know, as an author with something and I've been working on this off and on for a couple of years, you know, something's missing. And I've gone back and now I've changed the story and, and, and made it into a, sort of a present time pastime where a, a girl in the present is discovering the journal, you know, and reading about his adventures in this magical realm. And eventually, you know, they're going to they're going to cross paths. So it, it's, it's a funny thing about writing because you just sometimes you think you've nailed it and then you just kind of go, well, there's just this isn't the right. This isn't the book I want to release. So I'm, I've gone back and challenged myself to really make it into something you know, that's that's really going to be groundbreaking and, and really going to get kids excited, you know, get excited about reading. So there you go. You've got nine books out now since this is since 2008 when you decided that it's time to. I mean, nine is probably not the right number, but I mean, it's I mean, I've got four, seven, eight. How many do I have? I have the trilogy and I have okay, three I have the three from the Red Zorky, three from the Wish Zorky, that's six. And then uh, the okay, so Medusa Quest comes out next month. That's seven and eight. I have Zeus Medusa Quest. And then the four picture books, if you count the picture books, that's 12. So it'll be 12 next month. When, well, this month, actually, next week when the 
when the Medusa Quest comes out. And then the fourth book in The Witch's Working comes out in October. That'll be The Mermaid Queen. So it's, I usually put like one or two books out a year. Um, I don't like to stop writing for anything. So I don't think it's, I think it's just a matter of, you know, showing up every day. And I have the time, the commitment and the effort. And I have the series that this makes it easier to write, you know, when you're writing series. So then next year I'll release the Pandora story. Hopefully it'll be ready to release next year. I'm hoping fingers crossed. I'm just curious. To me, that's a that's a breakneck schedule, uh, but I'm a, I'm a painfully slow writer. Um, do you have books that you've written that that are not being published? Yeah, well, so absolutely. I mean, every author does, I think. And and so the thing about see most most authors, you know, are going to write a, are going to release a book a year, right? Because it's sort of a it's a process. Writing is a process, and and a lot of people have day jobs or, or real careers, and you know that this isn't a full time commitment for them, right? And for me, this is what I do full time. I I a literacy advocate. I travel to schools. I talk to kids about reading. We can talk about between the pages. My whole you know author visit program that I have as well. Um, hopefully, we'll talk about that. And and I write, and I write every day, and I write a thousand words a day. I mean, a thousand words is only a few pages, right? That's Steve. King writes 2,000 words a day. Um, I'm trying to write between 1,000 and 2,000 words a day, but 1,000 is my goal. Well, if I write 1,000 words a day, um, I'm going to write, uh, my books uh, are, are 40, 60, or 80. The Witches of Orkney is 40, The Legends of Olympus is 60, and the the Red Sun series is 80,000 words. Okay, so let's say, let's say I'm working on one of my uh, Witches of Orkney books. It's 40,000 words. I'm going to have a first draft guaranteed in 45 days, guaranteed. That's how it works. And then I'm going to let it sit for a couple weeks. And then I'm going to spend another 45 days to, you know, two months, three months, whatever, editing, revising it. Because that's the hardest part is editing and revising, right? I'm going to have a book every six months, guaranteed. Because it, creativity is a faucet. You see, if you, if you, if you, if it's being, I, this is how it works for me anyway. And I can't say how it works for everybody. For me, creativity is a faucet. You got to sit down, you got to turn it on, you got to believe that it's going to happen, and you got to produce, you know, the words. And if you have, uh, you know, like, well, I'm not in the mood today, well, that's nice. Elaine, sit down anyway and do it anyway, because you, you may not be in the mood tomorrow either, but you're still going to sit down. See, in like writer's block, like I always tell kids, people always say, well, you know, writing's not that easy. You know, you can't just put it out there and you're like, I get writer's block. And I go, okay, well, think of writer's block. Like, let's just imagine this for a second. Imagine you're a soccer player, right? And and you, you, you show up to soccer practice and the coach says, okay, Rob, get out on the field. And you say, you know, coach, I'm really sorry, but I have soccer block right now and I can't play soccer today. And he'd be like, what are you talking about, Rob? No, it's a thing, coach. I have soccer block. I just, I, it's not there. I can't feel it. I don't feel the soccer in me. He'd be like, get out there and start playing soccer. It'll come to you, trust me. And you'd be like, well, you don't understand what soccer block is. And he will say, what will he say? That's right. He'll say, you just got to play and you'll get over it. You'll forget. And I know that sounds silly, but it's really the same thing for writing. If you don't think you have something to write about, all you have to do is sit down and, and allow yourself the opportunity and the freedom to let it come out or whatever it is, no matter how bad it is, no matter how painful it is. And when you train yourself to do that every day, and a little every day, a little bit every day, a little bit every day, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? Just one bite at a time. One. How do you write an 80,000 word novel? One day at a time, one page at a time, 1,000 words at a time. 1,000 words a day, I'm gonna have that novel in 80 days, guaranteed. Am I gonna have bad days? Yeah. Am I gonna have days I skip? I'm going to have days I write 3,000 words because I get, you know, this massive brain thing. Yeah. And it's all going to average out. As long as I know going into it, that's the commitment I make, then I'm going to come out the other end of it with a finished draft. Is it any good? No, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> Most first drafts are terrible, right? And that's, and that's the difference between authors that 
go on to publish the stories and others don't. If you finish that first draft and you tell yourself, this is the most amazing thing that's ever been written. Yeah, I should get everybody in my family to read it. You are seriously delusional because you know when you're creating something, you're using only one part of your brain, your creative brain. And if you're that person, Rob, that says, well, I can create and edit, revise at the same time, you're lying to yourself because your brain is divided into two parts. There's the creative part, which is very sensitive, very fragile ego, does not like criticism, likes only to dance and flutter around and be creative, right? And then there's the analytical side of your brain, which, which knows all the details and all the grammar rules and all the things you should be doing and all the things that are wrong with your story. So when I'm writing, and this is my advice to all writers, is you leave the analytical side out of it. You just tell yourself it doesn't matter how good or bad it is. I'm here to write the story because you're picking it out of your brain like with a pickaxe, right? Because you don't have a story yet. It's your job to create characters that tell a story, character that has a problem and you find the solution, character problem solution. How do I put my characters through all these motions, through all these actions, so they get to the other end of it and we have a happy resolution and, and it was an exciting, fun ride along the way. So that's what your creative brain does. It's literally making stuff up as you go along day by day, making up, making up, making up. Is it always rational? No. Does it follow the timeline? No. Uh, that's not its job. Its job is just to create it, you know, make it, make it now, now, now. When, if you allow your creative brain, free brain, you get to the very end and you type favorite two words to that end, right? Well, now you have this 80,000 or 60,000 or 40,000 word story that has a beginning, a middle and an end, which you didn't have when you started. And now you let it sit for a couple weeks, as long as you need, and you come back with a fresh brain and your creative brain is now gone. Oh, I've been beautiful. I've done my job. I may now rest. And now your analytical brain comes out and your analytical brain goes like this. <coughs> clears its throat. <coughs> Let me take a look at this now. What is this disaster I have in front of me, right? And it literally goes, this is the worst story I've ever seen. Okay, but the creative brain is not here now. It's just our analytical brain. And it goes, this is wrong, this is wrong. Change that sentence, fix that, add more description. There's this timeline is all wrong. It's okay, because now you have something to work with. You can't build the plane and fly it at the same time. You have to first build the plane, right? And, and, then, and then make it flyable, right? You, know, you can't just do them both at the same time or else you'll spin your wheels. You'll be trying to fix something that you had, you don't even know where your characters are going yet. Imagine editing and revising your first chapter before you've written the second chapter. You don't even know these characters. You don't know what they're doing, where they're going, who they really are. So you have to really, my opinion, write the story and later bring out that analytical brain and it will do its job. It, it's like the, the blacksmith, the forger, the hammer. It just hammers and hammers and hammers. Edit, revise, edit, revise, edit, revise, reread, reread, reread 80 times. And then when I'm all done, it's like I've rewritten the whole story. And you know what I say to myself, Rob? Why? Why can't I do this the first time? Why can't I just get this right the first time? Why? After 12 books, why am I not better at this? And you know what? It's just literally the way it works, in my opinion. This is the way it works. It works for me anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and 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 you just you just it's just how and so now I know I know I know it's how it works and it's painful. It's fun and it's painful. And you think you're never gonna get done. You think you're never gonna you're never gonna solve whatever thing that is wrong with it. Like there's a there's some kind of illogical thing. And why would they do that? And why would that happen? It sounds good, but why? You know why would that happen? So anyway, that's that's how it works for me. Do you plot ahead of time at all, or is it all pantsing? And a follow-up question, do you really keep it that separate? Can you keep the analytical part from jumping forward every so often? Why'd you write that? Change it. 
Yeah, no, okay. Well, first, okay, so am I completely fly by the seat of my pants? Yes. And, and I admire, I admire people who can outline in some ways. Um, but I did hear Lee Child is one of my favorite authors. He writes the Jack Reacher series. And I had a chance to hear him speak at a conference a couple years ago. And he was just talking about how, you know, he what he does when he writes a story is he is it's like he says that he goes to the pantry and he gets all these ingredients. I'm gonna get the eggplant, I'm gonna get the flour, I'm gonna get the sausage, I'm gonna get all these ingredients for my story. And then I'm gonna start using them like in the kitchen, right? And when I get to about the halfway point, I'm gonna look and see if there's anything I didn't use and I'm gonna put that back, you know? And I'm just going to kind of use what I have and just kind of make this story happen. And they asked, you know, he said, you know, and, and he said, my agent said to me one day, um, I really don't think this should be written this way. I think it should be written the other way. And he's like, but that's not the way it happened. And, and, and the guys just didn't understand it because to him, it was all happening real time and you can't change it because that's not the way it happened in his mind. It was like literally happening real time. And he said, I don't want to know the ending to my story, how boring that would be because why would I want to write something that I already know the ending to? And it really resonated for me because it just was literally like, yeah, that, that, that's who I am. That's, see, if it's okay for Lee Childs, it's okay for Elaine Adams, you know? I don't have to know the ending. I don't have to know what I'm doing. What I really need is characters that are, that are engaging and I need a really compelling problem. I need a compelling antagonist who's going to put them through the ropes and really make it difficult for them to solve their problem. And that's really all I need and the rest will solve itself. I was working on my story last night. I was working on the Pandora story and I, I, I honestly, I don't ever know what's going to happen. And I just kind of go, okay, well, okay, where are we at now? Okay, let's, what's, what's going to happen? Oh, that's right. I said they were going to have dinner at the bully's house. The bully, you know, there's like a little bully in the story and her parents, you know, are the boss of the girl's parents. And she goes over there and I just think it's going to be a nightmare. And, and as I'm writing it, you know, it's just the story starts happening and the, the character, you don't have, I personally don't think we have control over it. Like your characters start acting and telling the story. And all of a sudden the bully is getting bullied by her older brother, who's the apple of the eye, you know, the old golden boy who can do no wrong. And he's like giving her noogies, you know, and like elbowing her and kind of really roughing her up. And my character is like, whoa, wait a minute, you can't treat her like that. And she sort of interferes, intervenes, and helps the bully who's been tormenting her. And they end up becoming friends. And you're like, I, I'll be like, and even my character says, if you had told me this morning that I was going to be friends with Daisy Delacorte, I would have told you you were, you know, wrong. And I was, that's, that's really what I'm thinking. Like, if you had told me that's how that story was going to end up. I would have, and, and I have to, now I have to decide if that works, you know, I can change my mind and say, well, that doesn't really work. I need them to continue to be antagonists, but I don't think I do. I think it'll work on my story. And the, these little pieces lead, they're like, like breadcrumbs, right? They lead you to the next piece and to the next piece and to the next piece. And they're just breadcrumbs on a trail and you just keep following it and, and you're, thro you're throwing out the breadcrumbs and you're following your own trail, but it's a lot of fun. And if you decide you don't like something, you know what, you can always go back, cut it out. I cut things out all the time, you know, but, but so that's a different, changing your story is very different than editing and revising. You know what I'm saying? It's very different. If I decide I don't like the way the story's going, I can go back and, and maybe revise it somehow and say, no, I'm going to just set that, I'm going to cut it. I don't ever delete anything. I cut it out, move it somewhere else and save it in case I want it. Um, but I, I know that's very different than critiquing your story or worrying about whether your story is any good or worrying about whether you really know, like sometimes I don't even really know the central conflict of the story. I'm just trying to figure it out as I'm going along and, and I'm getting the story, I'm getting there, I'm getting there and like, oh, I'm like, okay, I get it now. I see, I don't know how they're going to, I get it, you know, and, and you can sort of go back and weave things in. So, 
Um, I think that answered your question. It was there. Was there another part to it? No, I think uh, I think we nailed it. Although I am uh, wondering. Um, what does that day look like? Because I know, obviously, through pandemic, you're doing more online uh, visits rather than in-person visits. But presumably, eventually, we're, we're all going to get vaccinated and you're going to be back out there and you're going to be advocating for literacy. So what does that, what, what time are you starting? How long does it take you to get those thousand words on average? I know every day is not going to be exactly the same. And then also, how much reading are you doing uh, every day? That's a really great question. Okay, so... In terms of writing, I can write anywhere in time because I'm a mother of multiple children and I can multitask. So it doesn't matter whether I'm on a plane, the back seat of a car, uh, in a room full of kids screaming. My kids are older now, but you know. So writing for me, I don't need I don't need like a candle, you know, and like a you know like a perfect lighting around me. I, I just write whenever when I write whenever I get around to it in a day. And I and my day is my time is my own. So. And if you, when you think about it, Rob, the writer's job, you know, is, 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 you know, you think about what am I, what am I paid to do, right? I'm paid to use this keyboard to, to just make stuff up, right? I just make, I just use my imagination, I make stuff up. That's what I'm paid to do. Now, when you're using your imagination like that, how long can you go? Okay, do you, okay, a full-time job, you know, when we work, when I work, you know, eight hours a day, right? You think you can write eight hours a day? No one, no one, no, I'm not even, you know, George L. Martin can, can write eight hours a day. Okay, you can't because it it's like trying to do math problems for eight hours a day. It's exhausting to your brain. Using your imagination, creating writing, is, is, it's very exhausting. So I only work a couple hours on my writing a day. It doesn't take me, it shouldn't take me more than, once I get into the zone, I mean, I might, I might piddle around, I got to get into it, I got to reread what I did yesterday. There's a little bit of that entry, you know, entry into writing. And then once I enter, once I'm in it, once I'm in the scene and my fingers are poised, I'm going to get that thousand words out pretty fast because, you know, again, it's happening real time. My characters are talking to me. And if I know, if I can literally see it, sometimes I can't see it and I got to work harder. So it could be slower or faster. Like if, if it's there, I'm going to get 2,000 words out in, in an hour and a half, two hours, you know. And I said, I don't go back and read them. I don't worry about them. The next day I'll go reread re -read what I wrote. I maybe fix a few little things, whatever. But then just I'm just in the story creating it, okay. So that's that's how it works for me. Now when I'm editing and revising is a little bit different. I might spend a little more time every day on it because I'm I'm rereading right what I'm writing and I'm 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 using a different part of my brain. It's not as hard. I just think using imagination is draining and you can't if you burn out. If you push too hard and you try to push too hard, you just burn out. The stories it's like book. It's like you 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 know I'm, I'm creating. I'm writing. I'm writing. I get to a natural point you know where I stop and then it's like closing a book. And tomorrow you know it's gonna be it's gonna be there. So I don't I don't have to worry about it. I know I know the story will be there waiting in my imagination to write. Um, so when a pandemic, let's talk about the pandemic. So the pandemic happened. Now, typically I'm, 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 I'm writing my books and I'm traveling to schools and I'm, I'm visiting kids. I, I do hundred schools a year. Um, I give in my author talk over 600 times um, to kids all over the country to over hundred thousand kids. And I love it. I love what I do. I love, I, get, I love to, being a literacy advocate and it's just like a trifecta of being a, a writer for children and being a literacy advocate and being able to work with kids directly and get them excited about reading is really just like it hits it's just a trifecta right perfect for me uh, it hits all the bells um but when the pandemic happened i was literally scheduled to go to san antonio the next week and had to get canceled i was supposed to go to vegas got canceled boom 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 everything got canceled and so one of the one of the things that i did and one of the things i had been challenged with was 
trying to come up with a way to scale what I do. Now I have this really fun killer author talk. It's super fun. The kids love it. I'm like, I do it all the time. Okay. Um, I can only do it a hundred schools a year. I, I, in other words, I can't get to 200 schools. I'm not, I'm not Superman. I can't fly right from zoom, 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 right? So there's, and there's limited number of school days. So that's it. That's the limit. So that means the next five years, I might be able to visit 500 schools, but there's thousands of schools, right? Thousands and hundreds of thousands of kids that I want to reach with my message that reading is a superpower, that reading is this incredible thing, and, and really what is a book and the whole thing I do. So, Rob, what I did was, I, as what any rational person would do in the middle of a pandemic, I said, well, you know, I need to find a way to scale this. I need to find a way to create, to, to take what I do and to bottle it somehow so that anybody anywhere can use it and see it. So I don't know if in all your research on me, if you had a chance to look at between the pages oh yeah absolutely so you've got okay. five that are coming out that are gonna you explain it why, why, why would i do that <laughs> well yeah so so i ended up coming up with a way to capture my author visit in a, in a digital in a video format and i hired a whole crew we filmed it in the middle of the pandemic everybody took safety precautions and we filmed my author talk and we, and we made five short videos each video is about five minutes long and what i wanted to do i wanted to retain the humor because i'm very funny in person and i wanted to retain the interactivity of it in other words it's very interactive when i would come to your school i would say oh Okay, well, okay, Rob, what's the what's the first thing an author has to think about? And you'd be like, oh, pick me, pick me. And I would call on the kids, even if there's 600 kids in the room, I'd call on somebody and would keep them very engaged because I might call on them and they would tell me what they would think. And so I, instead of making, for example, one 30, 35 minute video, I made five short videos. And each video ends with that interactivity opportunity. Okay, guys, uh, let's meet Elaine. I tell you all about me, da da da, and you meet Elaine. I tell you about my background and the things I've done. And there's all kinds of animations and graphics and 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 sound effects and a cool fly-in. Like you think you're in a Harry Potter movie, okay? The 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 graphic effects are amazing. And at the end of it, I say call to action. You know, you guys tell me what the first thing an author is think about. Then I created three separate worksheets um, for all different grade levels, young, beginner, you know, medium, and, and upper grades. Do you know for them to do a worksheet as a class? So I can't be there, but you as a class can interact. Okay, guys, the teacher can say, what do you guys think? And they can all do a worksheet together and chit chat and talk about what they think. Then they come back and they play the next video. And it's completely built around the teacher's time frame. Teachers have very limited time to you know, in engage in the classroom. They've got everything you know, budgeted down to the minute. So you show the five minute video, you have 10 minutes of class time. Now, if you wanna take a break and come back the next day, you come back the next day and you watch the second video. So teachers are using this uh, across the country. I've had hundreds and hundreds of teachers sign up and use this in their classroom. The kids absolutely love it. They love the worksheets and they love, they're just, it's just engaging them all in learning to become, you know, better readers and also writers. There's a whole writer's track that goes with it that encourages students to build all the elements they need to be able to write their own story so that at the end of this, this whole series, which is free, by the way, it's completely free for teachers to use in the classroom, um, that they can then go out and write their own story. And the teacher are just raving saying you know they've been really frustrated with how to teach writing to the students get their students excited about writing and this has been sort of the way it's broken the ice for them to really open up that door to get them you know really excited about reading and and, and writing again so it's been a great tool now when the pandemic ends uh, and I can travel again 
uh, and I got my first vaccine, which was really exciting. Um, you know, it'll be different, you know, because I won't go to a school that hasn't already seen the program. So every kid, every school I go to will have gone through the program because there's no point in having me come there when they can watch the program because it's a phenomenal program and, the, you know, the graphics and the all the worksheets so that when I do go to schools, it'll be like, well, what am I going to talk about? Because <laughs> they already know I talk. <laughs> I got to come up with something all new to you talk about because, you know, it's... it's and now you've got to get a new outfit, right? Exactly. Or we'll just be more questions. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. And also, I may not travel as much. You know, that I'm just not sure about, you know, whether I'll do, because now I've created something which really I think is, is a great tool. Will I need to travel as much? I like to travel. Uh, but, you know, life changes and you come up with different opportunities and maybe there's something different I can do. I'm also working on a Between the Pages Junior uh, right now, which is for kindergarten through second grade um, to give them a little sense of, of the same kind of magic because right now the, the video series is designed for grades third and up, you know, so. You are a force to be reckoned with. I, I was just uh, looking at uh, almost in awe at all of your, your, your uh, marketing available just on your, your website alone and on YouTube. Uh, you, you, I, I saw the logo for Elaine uh, Adams Studios, um, which I assume you've got a whole crew helping you. You've got impressive uh, book trailers. You've got uh, just a trailer for your school visit that's, that's wonderfully professionally edited. Uh, you've got celebrities reading your books. My God, you've got uh, a Christian Clarence Worley uh, Slater, uh, Slater reading the, uh, <laughs> the Cold Thief and, 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 and Rashida Jones, I saw, and Wanda Sykes. Uh, you you've you've got everybody. You've got uh, you've got online curriculums that uh, folks can the teachers can download to use to teach your. So I assume I'm just talking with you. I, I think esteemed audience has an idea that you have boundless energy. This, this is yeah. you are extremely fantastic uh, for 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 liter literacy and, and for writing. But even you have got to have a a, a group that, that helps you produce all of this. So how are you able to come at us on all these fronts? Okay, a lot of it originates with me. There's no question. I have a vision on all things, and I and I, I I don't ever take no for an answer. And I and I have a lot of control over over the the projects that I do. I, I create all these projects. I drive all these projects, and so that's part of the benefit of being the kind of independent author that I am. Is that I I have a lot of creative control, and so I'm driven by trying to create assets and resources that teachers and students are going to want to engage with. My primary focus is a literacy advocate. My goal, you know, not just as an author, but just just my purpose in life is to get kids excited about reading. The fact that I'm an author is just one part of it. It just helps them relate to me in a way they relate to my books. They, I, write, I, I try to write books I think they're going to like, you know. That's my goal is to make the kids excited about reading because we know as adults that reading is the one thing that really opens up your imagination into all things possible. Reading teaches us empathy. It teaches us ability to be in someone else's skin, to imagine what it's like to be a boy with magic or, you know, to just have all these skills or just how to solve problems. It teaches us all these things. And, and I think kids forget that, you know, they, reading is hard. Reading can be boring. We get all these assignments. And my goal is to inspire them and to write books that I think they'll think are fun to read. And so when I think of all the ways to engage with kids, uh, you know, I think of, okay, teachers are the primary way for me to connect with kids because my books are written for kids that are still in school and connecting with teachers. Teachers need so much support. Teachers need so much help. They are given so little. They've been tasked with teaching remotely with, as an example, right? You know, we just all of a sudden, March 13th last year, we're teaching remote. You know, a lot of teachers can't even afford Wi-Fi at home. You know, they don't have a beautiful, nice, 
you know, computer like I have, they don't have the resource and they were given nothing and they were expected to just pull magic out of the air. A lot of teachers were teaching with their iPhones, you know, trying to rig cameras and rig, you know, I don't think anybody really understands uh, what burden teachers really shouldered over the last year and trying to, you know, respond and educate something that had never been done in the history of the world, uh, teaching remote like this uh, with a mass amount of students. And I give them a lot of credit. But even beyond that, you know, teachers are generally short, uh, short funded. They don't have resources in the classroom, especially in low income areas. They don't have new books. I've been to so many schools that haven't had a new book funded by the district in you know years, and the books are tattered and worn. And 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 so you know it's our job, uh, my job, my foundation's job to really try to support these teachers and come up with resources for them. So anytime I create an asset like a book, I think of all the ways I can support the teacher in in using that book in the classroom because that's how you can help teachers, right? So when the pandemic started, for example, for the Blue Witch, which is one of my favorite books, um, we just did a read along. It's very low budget compared to a lot of stuff I do, but it was very quick. It was a sudden response. Okay, we got a pandemic. Okay, let's do a read along. Teachers can play this in the class. Classroom. Let's do 80. I did 85 pages of worksheets. Now I did those worksheets, right? Because that's what I do. I love thinking of ways to connect my book, my story with teachers, make it something that they can use. Teachers to this day, a year later now, they love using the Blue Witch read along. The kids love reading along. They love the exercises. They think I'm a wannabe teacher. You know, they think I just somehow lied about my past, you know, and I must have been a teacher in the past because I come up with all these really fun worksheets. So a lot of it's me, but yeah, I do have. You know, it's really important to hire the right people, to work with the right people. I do have a creative director, which I call my chief creative officer, and I just tell him to make things happen. And he's like a project manager and he's really talented and he just goes out and whatever I say I want, he makes happen. He finds the right people. Um, and I have a lot of great artwork, which really helps. I have a beautiful artist, Jonathan Stroh, who's done all the artwork for my series. When you look at like my book trailers, he hasn't, he did all the artwork for my Orkney series, excuse me. Um, when you look at the book trailers that you talked about, this beautiful artwork that was all done, you know, for the books, and we just took it and we we made it animate, you know, we just played with it and we made it, and we, my team, animated it, and added music and sound effects, and you hire voiceovers, and there's just no end to what you can do if you don't say no, if you just say yes, I, I, let's let's make that happen, and that's how the between the pages. I mean, honestly, when you look at the opening to between the pages, you think you're in a Harry Potter movie, and people look at that and they just go, wow you did that for kids for what do you charge? I go, well, I don't charge. Are you kidding? That's not my model. Like, well, what's your business model? There's no business model. Oh, come on. This is for the kids. This is for teachers. This is for them to love reading as much as I do. Come on. This is fun. This is fun stuff, you know? And I'm just fortunate to be able to do that through my foundation and really, you know, create that impact, that long-term impact. You hope that kids come away from thinking, wow, that was really cool, that Elaine. And then I Zoom, you know, I Zoom all the time with the class. I Zoomed this morning for an hour and a half with a class. It was a class of 30 kids in uh, Pennsylvania. And they had gone through the program and they were reading some of the books and each one had a beautiful, brilliant question. And uh, and they're like, well, what, do, you, do you need to go after 30 minutes? You know, I go, no. Nah! I got time. Hour and a half. We were, on, we were on Zoom for an hour and a half. I got every one of their questions answered. And that's just, you know, that's a joy for me. That's a joy right there. That's a joy. You know, knowing that you were able to give those kids time. They're never going to forget that they had, you know, not only saw me on that Between the Pages video series, but then I took, came in their classroom and I inspired them all and encouraged them all to become writers themselves and readers. 
and I think it's something that they're never going to forget, and that is the, its own reward. Like that's its own reward, knowing that you can, you know, really uh, uh, not to toot my own horn, but you know, just it just it's just really gratifying to know that I am in a position. This is what I, this is this is my job, Rob. This is what I do. What a fun job, right? I am really happy, right? So we'll preach to the choir just a little bit. Um, reading is a superpower. I agree. But why is it a superpower? And why is it so crucial to you to advocate for literacy? How do you foresee the world changing for the better because you're going to spread literacy? Yeah. So, okay. So when I say that reading is a superpower, usually what I say to kids, I'll be, I'll be in front of 300 kids and I'll say, Okay, I think read superpower. When you read, you actually gain a superpower, right? And and they'll say, and they, I go, I know you guys aren't in first grade, okay, but it's true. When you read, you gain a superpower. And then I'll ask them, okay, can anybody here read my mind? Uh, can you read my mind, Rob? What am I thinking right now? What am I thinking about, Rob? Can you read my mind? What am I thinking about? I'm sending a thought to you. Uh, probably ask me what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And I can say, uh, yeah, I'm th okay. I'm th okay. You know, you say I'm thinking about, uh, you know, what you're thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Of. You know, and it'll be like, no, I just lied to you. That's not what I'm thinking about. What I was really thinking about was donuts. You know, I really wish I had a donut right now. And I, my lie detector goes off, and it's like, oh wait, I lied to you again. You know, and here's the point, Rob. You can ask me what I'm thinking anytime. You can ask your wife. You can ask anybody, whoever it is, what they're thinking, and they can tell you. And you don't know if they're lying or not because that's human nature. We don't always tell the truth about what we're thinking. And then I say to kids, "I'll prove it to you." Okay, we all do this. I say, "Have you ever been mad at your best friend?" And almost universally, everybody in the room raises their hand. And I say, "Have you? Has this ever happened to you? You're in the cafeteria at lunchtime, and your best friend comes up to you, and they're like, are you still mad at me?'" And you're like, mm, mm But inside, you're thinking, "You know what you did? You know I'm still mad at." You, right because we don't want to tell them we don't want to deal with it right we don't want to deal with messy emotions or maybe you're out on the playground and you get hit in the face with a ball and it really really hurts and everybody comes running up to you and they're like are you okay and you're like i'm fine but inside you're thinking i want my mommy you know because you know it really hurts but you're not gonna admit it right so we lie about what we're thinking all the time it's just human nature are you mad at me no are you okay i'm fine you don't want to say what's on your mind well when we read a book that changes right because the author invites you into the characters point of view and that is a superpower you're in you're in uh, somebody else's head uh, it might be a fictional character but you're really there you're literally right there in their head and whatever they're thinking you know and whatever they're feeling you feel and whatever whatever is happening if they're lying you know if they're scared or angry or mad or hurt or whatever you know you're experiencing it as close as possible to it it's so different than watching a movie when you watch a movie you're separate from it you can see Katniss Everdeen play play uh you can see uh, jennifer lawrence play katniss everdeen in hunger games but you don't know what she's thinking you just see her face and you see what she says you really never know if she's lying so watching a movie is a very separate experience than reading a book reading a book is a very personal connection you're in the character's skin and you're going through the story with them and that's different that teaches us something a skill that very few things do and that teaches us the skill of empathy the ability to really really imagine for a moment what it's like to be somebody else why is that so important because without empathy we can't develop a sense of understanding of other people there is no one like us which means everybody else in the world is different from us right everybody is different in some way from us we have to learn tolerance we have to learn understanding we have to learn patience we have to learn to connect to other people how do you do that by learning empathy by imagining what it's like okay now if you've never broken your arm you can't imagine the pain Right. So if somebody if you can't if you've never had any pain, 
Maybe you've just never had any pain. And somebody says, oh, my arm really hurts. And you're like, okay, you want to go get some pizza? No, dude, you don't understand. I just broke my arm. It really hurts. And you're like, I heard you the first time, but I want pizza. You have no empathy, right? Because you can't imagine what it feels like. And it only takes reading a story where an author goes into great detail about the swing going higher and higher and the character felt the joy and then he released and for a moment he was flying and then he fell and he hit the ground with a thump and a sharp crack, you know, rang out and a sudden jolt of pain like, you know, he never, you know, and, and you read that, you go, whoa, that must be what that feels like. We begin to understand, even if we've never felt it, we can begin to understand what it would be like to have parents that are divorced, to have parents going through problems, to be bullied. If you've never been bullied, read any middle grade novel. You know, you're going to learn what's it like to be bullied, what's it like to have these problems. And it teaches us this skill, you know, of being able to understand and relate to other people. And that's why reading is a superpower. It's one of the few times we can escape where we are. We can go anywhere in the world. We are not here. We read a book. All of a sudden we're in, we're in Narnia. You know, or we're in Hogwarts, we're somewhere else. We escape ourselves, we escape our own skin, and we inhabit the skin of somebody else for a little while. And then you know what? We close the book, and it's like coming back through that wardrobe in Narnia. We leave that magical realm, we close the wardrobe, and we're back in this world. And and but we're different. We're, we're touched. We're changed. You know, we're not the same. And those characters live within us. And and years later, we can remember them. They touch us. They feel. We feel. We we learn how they solve the problems. We cared about them. We don't want their stories to end sometimes. So um, that's really why I think reading is a superpower. And uh, you can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even try. I 100% agree. Exactly. You need to get out there. You need to spread empathy in this world as fast as you can. Keep going. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, our, our time, and I promise that I, I wouldn't keep you thinking about donuts while we're talking because I know you, you need to get to dinner. If I were to ask about three more questions, would that be comfortable? Sure. Yeah, no problem. No problem. But I got to choose carefully. One I'll burn right away because esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody. Uh, Lane Adams, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Yeah, so it's a really great question. And um, I, I I think the question is not so much whether I have seen a flying saucer because other than one being thrown across the kitchen, I've never seen a flying saucer. Um, and I haven't actually seen a ghost. Um, and I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but flying saucers, do I believe in them? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really hard to imagine that in this ginormous universe that we live in, that we are the only intelligent beings, because we're not that smart at the end of the day, I don't think. Um, so I tend to believe that, that we are not alone in this world and that there are mysteries that we don't understand. And, and you look at some of the things in ancient civilizations and, and things that have been recorded throughout history. And I think there's so much that we don't know about the universe. And, and, and I don't know if we'll discover all those answers or mysteries in our lifetime. And, and so my answer is, to both of those is no, I've never seen them. Uh, and, but when it comes to, um, to, to understanding the universe, I think there's a lot we don't know. And I think there's a lot that, that we, we, we are going to discover someday. And I look forward to the day. And I just think about, my goodness, we're, we're on Mars. Like we have a helicopter flying around Mars right now. I love that. You know, it's so like, we are, we are really making like, you know, I think of it as a very exponential curve, you know, we, we've very slow. It took us a long time from the beginning of mankind 
right? From from going back thousands of years, how far you go back to the beginning of mankind, to when we got on the moon, right, in in the 1960s, and then from then to now, there hasn't been a lot of progress, a little bit, but not satellites and like that. But now, you know, we're this close to putting a manned mission on Mars. And, and I think that's gonna happen in our lifetime. And and I just think that, that that's gonna to begin to open up new opportunities for us to continue to explore. And maybe one day we'll just trip across another beautiful world or, or at least meet some nice, I wanna meet nice alien, you know, extraterrestrials, not mean ones like me. Always, the movies are always, they're terrible, warmongering. They wanna destroy everything. So I don't really wanna meet any of those aliens just for well, just uh, read a shout out to previous guest Hugh Howie, uh, who just wrote a, a beautiful thread on Twitter about uh, the future of space travel and the, the idea that it's probably going to be um, some sort of artificial uh, intelligence doing a lot of traveling for us. But we'll have virtual reality experiences uh, where we can go to other planets and it will be as though we're there. So I hope he's right. And I hope that happens immediately because I would really I would really enjoy an evening of being on Mars or maybe other planets. Um, my next question is is nerdy kind of for me, um, as, as most of my questions are. But this one in particular, as I was uh, reading the Eye of Zeus, I noticed that you keep your paragraphs short, you keep your chapters short, you keep even your sentences short. There were several sentences where I thought, if this were another writer, those would be compound sentences. There'd be Oxford commas all through here, uh, and you're not doing that. You you keep it short, you keep it focused. There's lots of white space on the page. It reads fast your chapters end on cliffhangers. I'm assuming that's second draft type stuff. So what I want to know is, do you have some hard and fast rules for, for what goes into the, the, the style of Elaine Adams, at least for middle grade? So the Eye of Zeus is a little bit different because it was written in first person, which is honestly, I love writing first person. Although I don't do it very often because it limits your point of views unless you write first person multiple point of view, which I don't like to do. Um, so the Eye of Zeus series is written in one singular point of first person point of view. So it's all Phoebe's train of thought. Okay, so you're talking a 12 year old character's train of thought throughout the story, and you're going to use so it's the the story. There's no omniscient narrator you know, or, or other sort of point of view. So it's, for me, it's a little bit different. I love writing that kind of because you can be very playful and kind of funny. And then sometimes she's sort of like to almost talking to the audience, you know, uh, like if there's one thing a foster kid's not supposed to do is draw attention to yourself. I should know I've been in the system my whole life. I mean, literally since the day I was born. Okay. That's a 12 year old kid talking, right? And that's what you're trying to represent. Um, and like here, seriously, people, they leave her at a bus stop, you know, a bus stop, seriously, people, there are better places to leave a kid. So in this style that I'm adopting here, I'm adopting a style where Phoebe is quasi sort of just, you know, having, you know, omniscient thoughts here and speaking in Phoebe voice and Phoebe talk. And so her gonna have run on sentences, compound sentences, broken thoughts. And um, I don't worry about that as much. I think that you can get really hung up on if you worry about Oxford commas and things like that, because what it should read, what's important is that it reads well to the reader, like it flows, like you don't stop. You know, like there's nothing worse than a comma that makes you stop. I'm like, wait, why did I stop here? That 
doesn't feel natural. So, you know, everything I do, I read aloud um, more than once. I read it aloud and, and I also have it read aloud like through a voice app. And when you hear it, you can really hear the pauses and stuff. So short chapters, okay, that really varies. That, now, there are some chapters that are going to be short and there's some chapters that are going to be long. And it depends, again, when you're dealing with multiple points of view, I tend to switch point of view by chapter. Very very rarely will I switch the point of view within the chapter. It's easily done, but I tend to tell one chapter by one point of view. And so a chapter might have only two pages. And it's for kids, especially when you're writing for kids, young kids, they, you know, they need that break and they need to, you know, when you have frequent breaks and like they can stop frequently, their attention span isn't that long. So you're giving them an opportunity to get through something and like, okay, this is a natural place for me to take a break, you know, and, and rest my eyes for a minute or take a break, put the book down. So um, I don't have hard and fast rules. And sometimes what happens is later on in the book, you're going to see the chapters get longer Be because what happens is when you're in the middle of action, you don't want to stop. And that's a big mistake. You just don't want to stop. And so what you'll see is varying length of chapters um, because varying, I think it helps the reader just sort of like, you know, you kind of have a sense of each chapter has its own story, its own motion. When there's a natural conclusion, that's when the chapter ends. Some are short because that's just a nice tactic for readers to feel like they had a little break. They jumped into a different point of view that was completely like, whoa, and then they come back and now it's a different story and it, you know, it's a natural break. So, but you're going to find, especially toward the end, when we're in the main thrust of the battle, a lot of my stories have battles, the main thrust of the conflict exploding everywhere around you, you're going to see chapters really start to get quite a bit longer because there's just no place that you're going to want to stop. And, and really take a breath and because you, know, you can you can like like chapter 31 I, I was just looking at the pages it's like nine pages you know and some of the other chapters might only be six pages seven pages so you start to see that get longer and and I think that's just a natural I don't think there's a rule I think it depends on the story the voice and the age that you're writing for and um, yeah I, I, I don't I don't I don't have rules. Uh, there's no rules uh, except writing every day. There's no rules. I think the story has to has to read well. That's all. That's the only rule we have to follow up. The story has to read well for the writer that you for the reader that you intended it for. I, when adults adults like to critique my stories, and I think it's great. You can critique my story all you want, but I didn't write it for an adult, you know. So um, so I wrote it for a ten year old, right, or eleven year old, right. So I really want to hear what they have to say. And sometimes as, as adults, we're very easy to criticize things. We like to criticize things. We like to sound smart. And lots of people like to critique books, and that's great for them. Um, but you know, honestly, I just I just look at what kids have to say, whether they like it or not, and that's you know what I that makes me happy. And I think that there's no real rule. There's no rule that you have to follow in writing. There is no rule. You should write anything any way you want, as long as it makes sense to the reader. That the story makes sense the way it's being told. You know that when you walk away from it, you're like that made us, that made I loved it. I didn't stop. My brain didn't tell me there needed an Oxford comma there. If it needed, your brain will tell you, like any reader will say like, wait, there should have been a comma there. That's annoying to the reader. And kids know that, Every, we all know that it's instinctive because there's a pause that we're looking for. And, and if we don't need it, don't use it. That's my, that's my rule. And you don't need he said, he, she said all the time. If it's obvious, don't use it, leave it out. So I try to take out as many of those as I can. That demands a follow-up question, which is technically not a third question, kind of wishing for more wishes. Um, but how, if you're when you're writing first person like that, how do you maintain uh, the perspective 
uh, of a young person. Do you have young people you talk to regularly or just from your, your mini school visits where you talk directly to your readers? Yeah, how do adults make up kids' stories anyway? Um, I, you know, I, I, I think it's more that, that it, the personality just sort of takes root in your mind. I, you know, I, I definitely spend a lot of time with young people and I talk to a lot of young people and I do a lot of research. I try to find, I mean, it's hard to find like middle grade slang or something like that. That's, you know, it's PG, that's safe to use in a book. You're trying to find like, 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 like the, like what's, what is the, there's a, the dance, there's a certain dance that it was a dance craze. I, one of my characters did this like swish dance. I can't remember what it's called now. And, and it was like, one of the, one of the readers was like, you're kidding me. I thought this character was really cool until they did that dance. And I was like, okay, perfect. You can see how old I am. You know, it's like, you, you, it's really hard to keep up with kids and TikTok and all those kinds of things and keep, so a lot of ways, you know, you, you, you tend to keep as much of that out as you can and keep this focus on the story, you know, and the action of the story and putting kids through things, you know, that are just natural for them to react to and friendships and, and struggles that kids have and keeping it real, you know? So I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but yeah, I think we just make it, I think adults just make it up. We do our best to make it sound like what a kid would sound like. I, uh, I, I was uh, significantly impressed. It was, uh, I, I, I wouldn't have surprised me if you had uh, a young person right there with you telling you how to, how to write some of those phrases, because I assume you nailed it, but of course it's been a while since I was that age. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly, exactly right. I'm not the reader whose, whose feedback you're seeking. Well, okay, now, now for real, I'll, I will ask my final question, but thank you, Elaine Adams. This has been just tremendous. Uh, I feel like we, we, we did more than scratch the surface, but there's plenty of unplanned depth, so we're going to have to do this again sometime if you're amenable. Another book yes. or two, I'll come back and let's, uh, we'll, 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 we'll find a quieter spot than I found tonight and we'll be in good, we'll be in good shape. But my final question for you is, and, and usually where I end the show, is some variation of if there was some advice you could go back and give to yourself at any stage in your writing career that would have made things easier for you and might make easier the paths of all the writers who are listening or watching us now, um, what would you go back and tell yourself? It's a really great question. I think that the, the there's a lot of things I would tell myself. The list is really long, to be honest. I would have started this a long time ago. I wouldn't have waited so long. But I think the biggest advice I can give people is is don't believe your own press. You know, because what happens, I think, Rob, is a lot of us we write a book, and it's a pretty impressive thing, by the way, to write a book. And anybody, anybody out there that has written a book, I mean, it's very impressive that you did that, and and kudos to you. But the hard thing to remember is is again how much work is still to be done. That you're you you're you you may not be any good yet, and that's hard to accept, right? Because you just written a book, and you show your brother and your mother and your uncle and your neighbor, and they all love it. And they don't understand why you're not published and selling a million copies. And you think you're it's brilliant. You believe that, right? And so you don't understand why you can't. And you send it to agent after agent, and they say, they, they tell you no. And and whatever reason it doesn't resonate. For whatever reason, it could just be like we've had too many vampire books this year. We don't want any more vampire books. Your book is great, but we don't want it. Whatever the reason. Uh, but in most cases, what I find is that people are deluding themselves that that their book is ready, that they're ready, and that 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 the world should just you know be excited that they wrote it, and therefore they should be rewarded, you know, by getting that book deal that they want. And that in fact, there's a lot of work to be done. And 
lot of uncovering of what kind of a writer they're going to become and that they may not be any good to their fourth or fifth book. <laughs> you know, that, that, that first book is the first book and that's great. And that what they really need to do is learn how to edit, revise and take fit, crit, critical feedback. It's really hard to be um, crit, criticized, to be critiqued. I've had some of the best editors uh, give me just some of the most painful, you know, uh, painful, excruciating, you know, feedback. Yeah, obviously you're talented as a writer, Elaine, but this character is boring and plain and we've seen it all before and you're obviously very talented. Thank you for that. But, we, you know, there's nothing here new or original and that's hard to hear. I had one editor tell me when, I, when they were editing The Red Sun that if they saw the word red one more time, they were going to, you know, poke their eye out because I used the word red, you know, probably 5,000 times because it's about the red sun. Okay, the sun is red. Go figure. I use the word red a lot, but you know, you, you know, you don't know what's wrong until you get critical feedback by people that you respect and by people that are professional. And I don't mean you're, you know, again, not your brother, your mother, your uncle, and your friend, your best friend, your husband, all that kind of stuff. By people that are in the industry and that know what sells and what is current and what people are looking for. It's going to conferences and understanding what the market is looking for. It's networking and, and being told no over and over again and still standing up and still becoming a writer and writing the next book because your book, your first book you wrote, it may be your 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 dream child and all that, but you know, if you don't think you can write that next book, then you're, you're kidding. I mean, you gotta, you gotta get, get, sit down and start writing the next book as well. And because you, writing, it's like playing soccer. Imagine you only played soccer once. And you said, well, that was the best, look, I played soccer once, I played the game. What, what you expect me to play again? <laughs> well, yeah, how are you gonna get any better? You gotta keep playing, right? You can't just play soccer once and record the game and say, well, look, everybody, I played soccer, right? You're like, look at me, I, I, I scored three goals, you know, I'm great. Okay, well, what, 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 you gotta keep going. And I think that's what people don't understand. They get stuck on, I wrote this book and now I need to do something with it. Okay, well, maybe it's a doorstop. I don't know, maybe it is worth it. But if people keep telling you no, and, and you really wanna be a writer, then maybe you need to start really looking at what kind of writer do you wanna be? What is selling in that market? What are people looking for? How do you fit into that market? Did you really edit and revise to the way it needs? Or were you just spinning your wheels? Were you just spinning your wheels over and over on the perseverating on the same thing and not really getting a fresh take, You know, meaning outside advice into what's really wrong the story. Is it marketable length? You know, if you're going to write a 150,000 word novel, I'm sorry, I don't think anybody's going to buy it. George R. R. Martin can get away with it. Most people can't. If you have an opus like that, you know, it's probably not marketable, especially as the first novel. It's got to be 80,000 words there. You know, if it's a children's book, it's got to be a lot less, really. So I think it's just really educating. You know, if I was to give advice to people, I wish I had known what now, what I know now, I wish I'd known it then. I don't know how to become an author, no, I'm kidding. Um, it, because it's hard, it's hard work. And like I said, people critique you, people you know, kick you and tell you you're terrible and other people tell you you're wonderful and you don't know who to believe, you know? And, and you're at the whim of, of everybody, you know, except yourself. So um, I think that stay the course and, and become the best writer, develop your skills as a writer. And don't get hung up, like I said, don't believe your own press. Just keep going forward and developing your skills and, and network with other writers and network with conferences. There's all kinds of conferences for like children authors. You have SCBWI, the Society of Children Writers, Book, book Writers, Illustrators. Um, there's thriller fiction. Uh, there's all kinds of thriller conferences where you can connect with people like Lee Childs and all these other great authors. You can meet them in person. So I think if you really want to be an author, are you doing all those things? Editing, getting professional editors, going to conferences, networking with agents, getting feedback on your story, revising it, and then realizing, okay, if this is not going to sell, I still want to be an author, then keep 
set this aside and write the next story because maybe it'll be better because having written it once, maybe the next time it'll be better. You'll be better at it because you did it once. You know you can do it again. You do it once, you can do it twice, you can do it three times, you can be like Elaine, do it 12 times, right? You can just keep doing it. So I hope that was good advice. That was tremendous advice. And anyone that wants more, I know you've got uh, a section on your website, The Iron Jaw, uh, that, that, that writers can go and, and read your thoughts on writing. What is your website and your other social media? Where can people find you online? Absolutely. So my, my website is uh, elaineadams.com. And you can find me on any, just about any social media under Elaine Adams Books. I'm on Twitter a lot, Instagram a little bit, Facebook. Nah, no one really goes on Facebook, do they? No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I just spend most of my time on Twitter. It's, a, it's a, that's where I have the most fun with teachers. So I hope you guys see, I hope to see you guys out there. Um, and I hope you guys had fun listening to this tonight. Our esteemed audience, as always, head to middlegradeninja.com. Check out thousands of interviews with all the best people. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It'll change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.